we are working our way, just started, through Second Peter. Living on earth with a divine nature. How does that work? What does it look like? What empowers it? It is so easy, I think, to accept a fairly commonly held view of Christianity where it's just accepting certain beliefs. You, you kind of sign on. You believe in the Trinity. Jesus died on the cross. Uh, Jesus is coming again. And, and yes, I believe those things, and hence, I'm, I'm a Christian, or I was born in a Christian country, or a Christian society, or a Christian home. When Peter talks about the Christian life, he does so in very different terms. And I think it's good for us to make sure that uh, the common conceptions we hold are, are biblical ones and not just culturally common ones. The title this morning is How the Promises of God Are Supposed to Work in Creating Godliness. How the Promises of God are supposed to work in creating godliness. Second Peter 1, we started these verses last Sunday morning. Four verses, 1 through 4. Simon Peter, Simeon Peter, it says here, I talked about that last week, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. These words we looked at last week. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. All right? That was one thought. May, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge, he repeats this word knowledge three times, of God and of Jesus our Lord, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises there, so that, so this, something's going to happen that's related to this, the promises, so that through them, them refers to what? The promises, right? Through them, Let this sink in. This is really strange what he says here. When you talk about the new life in you, you would think about the work of the Spirit. You would think about the inward regenerating touch of the Holy Spirit. You might think of a lot of things that produce this new nature. He talks about these promises so that through them, the promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. Now, honestly, had you, had you ever noticed before the way Peter relates a whole new nature to promises, knowing promises? That doesn't seem possible. Those two things don't even seem to connect. So that through them, the promises, you may become part, partakers, not just knowers, partakers, participants of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Let's, let's pray. It seems easy for us 
years removed from the inscribing of these words to live beneath a fairly substantially promised privilege. And if we're missing anything, we want, Father, for you to come by your Spirit and ignite it in our souls. We will do nothing in our lives more holy than reading your word and studying it. And so, remove little thoughts, unworthy thoughts, quick and tired minds, As we gather our thoughts around your word this morning, come Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week we studied two of four foundational truths. And so important are they, these four things, that Peter insists on reminding people. He's going to say that in a little while in our text reminding people of them even though they might already know them. They can't be known too well. That's what Peter is saying. I can relate to Peter a little bit. I'm not an apostle. But believe me, it takes a fair amount of fortitude to get up and proclaim truths that you know people might not find exciting because they think they already know them. Preachers like to be innovative. Preachers like to be exciting. They wear cool clothes and, and, and hip glasses and stuff so that, so that people will think that what they're getting is something nifty and new and on trend. Nobody likes to just repeat stuff that people know already. The first truth was the content of the gospel is, is specific and it's measurable. I, I, let me just go back. Here, you'll see, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. So God had acted in human history, the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. His decisive saving act centers around Christ and no one else, and and, and, and Peter says, I recognize your faith as being valid, and the way I know it's valid is it, it fits with what I've been teaching you about Jesus Christ, God's righteousness made manifest in Christ. And so Peter says, if my religious faith is to be uh, valid, if it's to be saving, worthwhile, Peter has the nerve to say, well, then it has to be the same as mine, Peter says. Do a quick test. You can do it right now. Everyone in the room. Test your conformity to the world. Does it subtly disturb your inner moral code to say these words to yourself? Say these words just in your mind. My faith is true and any faith that contradicts it is false. How does that feel when you say that in your mind? Now, 
that is a visible manifestation of having the, the populist mindset squeezing you into its shape. It's the Romans 12, 1 and 2 test. Don't be conformed to this world. See, it's not your creed that measures your devotion. It's your creed when it's confronted by other options. Does it feel bigoted for you to say, my, my faith is true and yours isn't? If it does, you're already being squeezed into the world's mold. That's where that discomfort comes from. It's socially unacceptable to think that way, and we know it. So that's the first thing Peter says. <clears throat> I evaluate your faith, Peter says. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, and I evaluate your faith. It has to be this faith, or it's no good. The second truth was the power of my faith. It was meant to be constantly multiplying in my life. Be multiplied to you, and here's how, in the knowledge of God and of, of Jesus our Lord. So it's not enough to... The idea commonly held is you receive grace. It's all just receiving. You receive Jesus. You ask Jesus into your heart. You accept Christ. You receive grace. None of it's untrue. It, it misses what Peter's talking about, that the whole idea of grace isn't just reception. It's multiplication. Deeper levels of transformation. And he says, twice... I had to keep switching slides back and forth, so I won't wear you out with that. But twice he says it's through this knowledge, a kind of knowledge. So there's a measurement for faith. It's objective. It has to be this faith. And it has to be multiplying. And it's in terms of its, its uh, fertility in my life. If, if, if I was saved in, you know, 1962 and all I've done is rejoice in that I received grace in, in that little Pentecostal church at 611 Brunswick Street in Prince George, British Columbia, it would totally miss the idea of what God has been wanting to do in my life since that moment. Everything expanding, everything growing. Those are the first two points. Now we're going to look at three and four. I said there were four points. So the numbering works like this. Here's point number three. God has made adequate provision for every Christian to grow beyond his or her present level of maturity and wills all of us to do so. Where I get that is in 2 Peter 1, 3. His divine power has, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, here's the thing again. That through the knowledge of him who 
called us to his own glory and excellence. There's a a call, a summons, a growth in glory and excellence. We see God's expectation there. God's expectation for all who who claim his name in this world, who who claim to have received grace. So we see it's, it's, it's totally wrong for any Christian to merely rejoice in forgiveness. We are forgiven. Praise God. And that should bring great joy, perhaps my greatest joy. But forgiveness is the beginning of the process. It should never be viewed as the conclusion of the process. As a Christian, I'm not merely one who has been forgiven for his wrongdoings. God didn't just come and wipe the record of all my wicked deeds clean. That's that's not the message of the gospel in its completeness. It's a distortion of the Christian faith and message. God did wipe the slate clean, but he did something else. He gave me a new nature. Paul teaches that I'm not just a forgiven person, but that I'm a a new person. And Peter's going to say it clearly in the fourth verse. You see it there where he says that through them, that's the promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. Right here. Right now. Partakers of the divine nature. John. John goes down the same road. 1 John 3, 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. That's that's, uh, calculated sin. Calculated sometimes on the basis of, well, God's loving and gracious. Don't you judge me. I, I just have my personal relationship with Jesus and He's accepted me the way I am. That kind of thinking. You can't can't calculate. You can't plan. You can't can't put your will in participation with sin. Why not? Well, because because God's seed abides in him. He he cannot keep on sinning. It's this kind of sinning. Because he's been born of God. So... Peter's words in verse 3, they kind of teach all of us to hear the whole call of God rather than just a little part of it. And, And here's the important point. This call to be partakers of a new nature, called unto his glory, the call comes with provision. The call comes with provision for its own fulfillment. And there has to be someone thinking, well, Pastor Don, you you just don't know my circumstances. I don't think I'm ever going to amount to all that much in the Christian life. I've struggled a long time. And that's the very attitude Peter is addressing in that third verse. You, You aren't certainly aren't, nor am I, adequate on my own terms, but that's not the issue. God provides something. God is adequate, and he provides something. Full provision for all of my weakness, all of my need. He says his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. 
And then he repeats it again in verse 4, just in case I miss it. He has granted to us his precious and very great promises. And this has to be the most stunning phrase in the Bible. So that through them, the promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. There, Peter says, God, God has provided everything needed. He says it. He's provided everything needed to help me grow in grace, joy, peace, holiness. How does this work? I mean, if I read this and I just live the rest of my life unchanged, then there's a disconnect. Am I right? There's a disconnect somehow. And I don't, I don't want to disconnect. I, I want to see how this works. So point number four. I'll spend a little bit more time here. How, how to live in the power of God's precious and magnificent promises. And I'm looking now at that fourth verse for starters. He, God, has granted to us his precious and precious and very great promises. Not just great in that they are great things promised, but great in terms of the power to go along with them. So that through them, that's the promises, you may become partakers of a divine nature. He says it positively and then negatively. Have become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. So there's the promises, great precious promises. Through them, you can participate, partake in a divine nature, and you can escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. That's a big promise. We should listen carefully to those words from Peter. For every person who feels like he or she is too big a failure, to ever have this apply and work in, in their life, remember for a minute who's writing this. Peter was the biggest braggart of all the disciples. He just was. He said some of the dumbest things that are recorded in the Gospels. And he was arrogant. Can, can, can you imagine? I, I'm not going to look up the reference. Jesus is talking about how they're all going to scatter after his crucifixion, and Peter, with all the other disciples listening, you think, Peter, like, a little people skills here. The other disciples are all listening, and Peter says, okay, these guys, these losers, they may desert you, but you, you don't know what you've got here, Jesus. Doesn't matter. Death may come. Not me. Not me. 
the 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 I'm gonna preach on it sometime. That passage where the rooster crows and Peter has denied Jesus three times. Not long after saying he would never, ever deny Jesus. And the rooster crows and, and all four gospels say Jesus, Jesus looked at Peter. That's not just Peter feeling a little bad. This, this is the one who created Peter. The judge of the universe looks at Peter. And he goes out and he says he wept bitterly. You see him bawling his eyes out. That's Peter. Now he's writing, he's granted to us his precious and great promises that through them you may become partakers of a divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. That's that fourth verse. Peter, Peter knows what it's like to... Uh, he quite literally deserted Jesus at the one time Jesus needed his faithfulness the most. He cursed Jesus, Matthew says. After everything Jesus had done for Peter... He denied ever knowing him. So, so it's not that he, he didn't just forget about Jesus. He actively betrayed Jesus. Judas wasn't the only one who betrayed Jesus. Peter saw that Jesus was going to die. He panicked. He refused to stay faithful to his Lord after seeing him calm the seas with a command after seeing Jesus feed 5,000 people with a couple of loaves and fishes, after watching him call Lazarus out of the grave from the dead, he saw Jesus make blind people see. Didn't God know Peter would fail so miserably when he called him? It says Jesus prayed all night before choosing the 12 apostles. Why was Peter picked? Let me ask you something else. That whole thing with Peter in the inner court and the servant girl and Peter denying Jesus three times, how did we ever get that? There were no other apostles around that saw this happen. How did we get that account? I'll tell you how we got it. We got it from Peter. We got it from Peter. Why is that account in every gospel? There's only one good answer to that question. Peter was chosen so we would all have his example from which to glean some understanding. And now we're zeroing in on something. If you haven't been listening so far, start here. Why did Peter fail so badly? Well, it's his temperament. No, there's more to it than that. I'll tell you why he failed. He saw Jesus coming to what looked like the end of the road. And for a brief moment, everything seemed hopeless. 
All the former glory was gone. Remember the days when Jesus would just come by the seashore and the crowds would be so great he'd have to get into a boat and so he could teach. Glorious days. Glorious days. He was one of Jesus' followers. The former glory was gone. The forces of darkness looked like they were winning. Peter didn't want to go down with the ship, and that's why Peter cursed Jesus, said, I never knew him. What are you talking about? But even that isn't quite the whole story. Because Peter didn't just happen to fail the Lord. Look through the account. Jesus told Peter very, Peter very specifically that he was going to be betrayed, he was going to face trial, that he would be crucified, and promised, promised, exceeding great precious promises, okay? Promised Peter that his death was not going to be the end of the road, but the beginning of the road. Jesus promised Peter that he would rise from the dead. So, full stop. This is the time in the sermon to think. Peter was weak. Figure in everything you want. Peter was weak because he forgot a very precious, magnificent promise. And it affected his life. You see it? So when Peter writes about God has granted to us all we need. Oops. Exceeding precious, very great promises so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Peter knows what he's writing about when he talks about promises. In verse 2, he writes about the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. In verse 3, he writes about the power given for the life of godliness through the knowledge of him who called us. And then verse 4, he makes it more specific. Writes about the precious and magnificent promises that provide fuel for powerful living. So, So we come to see Peter's heart here. He's stressing the importance of knowledge and of knowing and of remembering. But the knowledge isn't just some abstract theological knowledge. It's, it's living and practical and a consuming application of the promises of God. Maybe, maybe we could come at the issue this way. Why does Peter say we need to remember God's promises? Verse 4 is the clearest place. God has granted to us his very precious and very great promises. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped. There's something after you. Do you know that while you sit right here now? There's there's someone after you and you have to escape. having escaped 
It's not just a matter of turning from, it's escaping from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. It's quite striking. It's not what I would have expected. I would think God gives promises so we can know that what he tells us is really true. You know, the, the way we, we back up our claims. No, I, I promise. I'll be home for dinner at 6. I promise. And the promise means that really. But, but Peter doesn't say God's promises are to kind of reinforce the fact that God isn't lying. God doesn't need to back up his intentions and plans in any way. No. The purpose of the promise isn't geared toward making his word more certain. It's to change the way I aim my life. Aiming my life at what God has promised. So so the promises need to be remembered so we can escape the corruption that is brought into our lives because of sinful desire. We need to drill down into that. We can look into God's word to see exactly how, how this is to work. As long as I live in a physical, temporal body, Peter says that I, you as well, we, we all have inward inclinations, reflex responses to life. And, and they feel right because they're our own desires. But Peter says they will only bring, they'll only bring corruption. So, so what that means is, young and old, if I put my faith in my own inclinations, my own reactions, rather than some counteracting promise from God's word, my life is going to become more and more corrupt. It doesn't mean just base or immoral. It means decaying, coming unglued. It's the opposite of of things that create. It's, corruption is anti-creation. There are dozens of ways the promises of God must be applied if they're to fuel grace and a new nature in my life. And I want to give you some examples now and then we'll wrap up. Here are specific examples. How promises work. I will never be free to live without uh, anger, bitterness, and vengeance until I really believe a specific promise from God in Romans twelve nineteen. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. So there's the command. But leave it to the wrath of God. What, what would make me... What would make me turn from this, which is what I want to do? That's those, those inner inclinations, okay? That's what I'd like to do, especially if I'm justified. Somebody wrongs me in some way. What would make me say no to that and leave it to the wrath of God? Why would I do that? For it is written, here's the promise. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Promise. It's a promise. So, so if I develop 
It happens in churches all the time. If I develop a lifestyle of anger and bitterness and resentment toward people who wrong me, I'll tell you what my real spiritual problem is. Unbelief. I do not believe the promise of God. I don't believe God's promises. And here's a classic example. You know what that's going to bring into my life? Decay. Corruption. It's exactly what Peter's talking about. I need to trust. I need to trust. Every sin has God's full attention. It is either punished in the body of Jesus on the cross or it will be punished eternally in hell. Every sin has God's full attention. Not one injustice doesn't have God's full attention. Here's another example. I will never be free. Sorry, church. I will never be free to give to the Lord and support his work financially with my tithes and offerings unless I take seriously a specific precious promise from God. Here it is. And God is able to make all grace God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. That's a quote. Now Paul writes, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed. That's your money he's talking about. For sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all your generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Please don't miss what's happening here. This isn't a preacher begging for money. The subject is the promises of God. Giving if it's done with the, a right heart, giving always throws you back upon the promises of God. Any fool can create such a consuming lifestyle that tithing feels like an impossibility. Any fool can do that. But you will be freed to begin your budget with honoring God only when you come to terms with that promise. God, I can make everything abound to you if you honor me first. There are all sorts of people here, and you, you, you throw in like what you think you can afford, what you have left over, and it's always going to be that way because you're just not living by the promise of God. Let me close with one more example from the epistle that we're actually studying, the letter we're looking at, Second Peter. He's writing to a group of Christians, more accurately, groups, little congregations, pockets of scattered Christians. And they're, they're facing hardship and they're facing persecution. Um, they're being plagued with false teachers as well. And Peter wants to give them something that will keep their lives from coming unglued. That's what Peter's trying to do here. 
He he knows he wants them to stay on message with the gospel. That's what he started with. We know he wants them to stay meek and patient, not to return evil for evil. He wants them to have something that will keep them strong and encouraged and on track. Holiness and growth. What would you say? And true to form, here's what Peter does. He gives them a promise. It's in 2 Peter 3, 9 to 11, last text. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. As some count slowness. But he's he's patient toward you. Not wishing that. How many? Not wishing how many? That any should perish. But that how many does he want to repent? Never let anybody take those words out of your New Testament. Here's the promise. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. He's going to expand on it, but that's the bare bones of it. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, here's your question, eh? What sort of people ought you to be? Don't miss what's happening. Peter is saying, here's here's the best thing I can give you. Here's the best thing you can do for yourself in your hour of trial. Comes in all sorts of forms, doesn't it? Nobody in this room without some kind of trouble. Here it's persecution. Here's the best thing you can do for yourself in your hour of trial. Ignore all the other voices. Refuse to listen to the mocking world around you. Remember, Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. Peter can't even visit these people. He's going to be dead and gone soon. There are no seminars. There are no podcasts. There are no blogs. There's no internet. What's he going to give them? Scribbling a letter. What's he going to give them? And he says, I'm going to be gone. Hook up your heart to a magnificent, huge, precious promise and never let go of it. Tell everybody Jesus is coming again. Isn't that our answer to almost everything? You know, look, look at this room full of people. Some are healthy, some are sick. Some have lost jobs. Some are the only Christian in the home or the workplace, and it's a battle everywhere you go. There are people here, you're so sick of your fallen nature, you just wish you could be rid of it. And Peter would come into this place, and he'd say, I, got, I have something for you. I got something for you. In the face of aging... <laughs> Hook your life up to this. Jesus is coming again. 
Maybe you didn't hear me. Jesus is coming again. Peter holds to the same promise, you know. This isn't Peter scribbling a note in some seminary library. This is Peter as he faces his own execution. He's about to be executed for his countercultural devotion to Christ, and he won't compromise. And so he's, he's one of them. Jesus is coming again. Now, just knowing that this promise exists, that, that's not enough. And that's not what Peter's talking about. If I give my s- more space in my mind to the movies of the day than the promises of God, I will never make it spiritually. If I dwell more on my wealth and what I can do with it than the promises of God, then all the bets are off. If I immerse myself in church work, but I forget the promise of the coming of Jesus and his reward for faithfulness, I'll quit soon because nobody thanked me, nobody liked me. I'll get discouraged. I'll throw in the towel. But the knowledge of God the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus Christ as, as a promise giver and a promise keeper, that can keep your heart pure and growing and singing through everything that comes in life. I, I went through three promises as I wrapped up this message. How many do you know? Can you find them in the Bible? Particularly the New Testament. How many of those do you think about at least once a day? If you want grace and peace and a new nature to be multiplied in your life, I'm telling you, that is the place to start. The Bible says so. The Bible says so. Let's pray.